Well, if you would, please join me in Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 7. Yes, there is a book in the Bible called Ezra. You can begin in the Psalms, just go about four books back from the Psalms. If you've gone to Chronicles, you're too far. So we're here today on the tail end of the holiday season and celebrating the coming of the new year. A lot of people have traditions that they practice to bring in the new year. Some people toast at midnight, some people eat black-eyed peas, some people eat bunuelos, and yet others sing Auld Lang Syne as the new year rolls in. Perhaps the most popular tradition, though, is the making of New Year's resolutions. As December ends, one is often found reflecting upon the year that is coming to a close and looking forward to what is in store in the new year. There's something about a new year, I think, the calendar rolling over to January 1 that inspires the sense of a of a fresh start, perhaps a a new opportunity. But there's also another thing that comes along with this tradition, and it's the tradition of bailing on your resolutions by the end of January. Some people look on at others as they fail in their resolutions and they scoff, and since no one can ever stick to their resolutions, well, why make them anyway? I don't know which one you are this morning, whether you're the the kind who looks upon the new year with optimism and eager anticipation as you write out your resolutions, or perhaps you're the kind who is more cynical about the whole idea of resolutions. But this morning, I want to to help us to think about the whole concept of, of resolutions in a biblical way. If a Christian is to write up resolutions, what should they look like? What kind of focus should there be? Are resolutions something that Christians must do? What is a resolution anyway? I think these are all important questions. Let's begin by just defining the term. The word resolution means a firm decision to do or not to do something. There is a fixed nature in the word resolution. There's some sort of ironclad sense in the word It's setting your heart to accomplish a certain thing. Now, to be sure, you don't need a new year to set a resolution, of course. You could resolve in your heart to do something at any point in the year. But being that it is the beginning of a new year, it's as good as a time as as any to to resolve to do something. So is is this something that Christians must do? Well, let me just say very simply, of course not. Surely you know that. Of course Christians are not required to make New Year's resolutions. After all, they're not necessarily found in Scripture anywhere, are they? But if anyone is predisposed to the idea of resolving in their hearts to do or not to do something, isn't it a Christian? Because a Christian becomes a Christian by resolving in their heart to turn to the Lord and to turn away from sin. To begin worshiping the one true God and and stop worshiping yourself. Fighting sin in your life, my friends, takes resolve. You resolve to put to death sin, to live for Christ, to to, belong to a local church and so on and so forth. I'm reminded here of Jonathan Edwards and his famous little booklet entitled Resolutions. I would really encourage you to Google Jonathan Edwards Resolutions PDF. You can read it for free online. In the year 1722 and over the course of the next year, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, would write out 70 resolutions. 70 different things that he was resolving to do in his life. Can you imagine? 70 resolutions. 
Sometimes we have a hard time thinking of what. What, what is your New Year's resolution? Ah. And here he has 70. Now, to be fair, he, he wrote them over the course of a year, right? It wasn't 10 minutes before midnight on New Year's Eve. These aren't New Year's resolutions either. These are just things that he is resolving to do. They are thoroughly biblical. I would say that if any among us were to take it upon themselves to abide by the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards in the power and help of the Spirit, that you would lead a very godly life. Edwards does two very interesting things in his resolutions, though, that I think stand out to us as exemplary. He calls himself to revisit his resolutions often. Now, have you ever done that? You resolve to do something, whether it's on New Year's Eve or some other time, and then you just never revisit the thought ever again? I'm going to do this particular thing. Hey, weren't you going to do that, that one thing? The what? Oh, yeah, I did say that, didn't I? Am I the only one? Okay, I guess so. Maybe your resolution should be to not lie anymore. But he resolves to revisit his resolutions again and again. But he also resolves in his heart to live in a way that is glorifying to God, beneficial for himself, and for the good of others. Now I wonder how many among us, when writing our resolutions, resolve to live for the good of others. Most of the time, our resolutions are very self-centered and self-focused for our own benefit, aren't they? I'd like to lose that last 10 pounds. I'd like to save $500. I'd like to travel more. And it's all about us in our resolve. Not often is there a focus on bringing God glory, and even less is there a focus to live for the benefit of others. I look at my own life and my own history of resolution writing, and I find this to be true. I wonder if the same is true of you this morning. If so, I would like us to spend some time thinking of, of how to frame up what we resolve to do in this new year in a way that's glorifying to God, benefiting to ourselves and for the good of others. We're going to look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10 this morning to do that. But before we dive into our text, I feel compelled to give you a disclaimer. This is more of a topical sermon, of course. As you know, we don't do a lot of topical sermons around here. My goal this morning is not so much to walk you verse by verse through Ezra, but to use this very powerful verse that we can draw principles from and use those principles as a sort of outline that we can use to be resolved in our life to glorify the Lord. So to be clear, in no way do I want to imply that Ezra is writing New Year's resolutions. Okay, please don't walk away from here this morning thinking, did you know that Ezra is about New Year's resolutions? That's not the case. We just want to look at the text to draw principles from it and use those as an outline within which we can set our own resolutions. So, in our text, hopefully that was enough time for you to find Ezra. Ezra chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 6. Ezra 7 verse 6, and we'll read through verse 10. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray. 
Father, as we turn now to your word and needing to, to learn from your word, I pray that you would give me wisdom this morning, Lord, to rightly divide your word, uh, to not just completely rip this passage out of context, but to truly draw forth principles that are really in this text for the good of your people. And I pray that you would bless both the preaching and the hearing of your word for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What I hope to do is draw from this text four principles to resolve to live by. Four principles to resolve to live by. The first one, resolve to grow in the knowledge of God. Resolve to grow in the knowledge of God. We're going to focus on verse 10 here, but I'd like to give you a bit of background since we are parachuting into the middle of action here in this book of Ezra. This book begins at the tail end of the exile of the Israelites. As you may know, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that God was going to judge his people by sending them into exile for some 70 years. Now, their exile is coming to an end, and God raises up this great king in Persia named Cyrus, who's going to show favor to the Israelites and allow them to go back to their land and even rebuild their temple. He's not only allowing them to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple, but he's also going to empower them with endless resources. Basically, whatever you need, let me know and I will give it to you. That's some real power and some real favor that they were given because God raised up this king and stirred up his heart. We learn in chapter 2 that there's about 50,000 men and women, including servants, that head back to Jerusalem. In chapters 3 verses through 6, there's the story of, of how this plays out. It's the rebuilding of, it's going back to Jerusalem, it's the rebuilding of the temple uh, led by Zerubbabel. It's really interesting because once they lay the foundation of the temple in chapter 3, there are some people who are very excited and they praise the Lord for what is, is happening. And there's other people who are lamenting. And why are they lamenting? It's because they saw the first temple. They remembered how glorious that was. And they look at this new one and they say, this doesn't even compare. Never mind the goodness of God and allowing them to leave exile, right? But then this group of people comes and they come to Zerubbabel who was leading the charge there and rebuilding the temple. And they say, you got to stop this. And they go to the king and they say, hey, these guys are a bunch of rebels. You don't want them to do this. They are a a, a bad people. If you allow them to do this, it's going to be nothing but trouble for you. So this new king issues a decree for the work to stop. And the work stops for an extended period of time until the prophet of the Lord, Haggai, prophesies, essentially saying, get back to work. What are you doing? Why did you stop? Go back to work. You're going to be successful. So they do. And then there's a new king, King Darius, who issues another decree saying that the men can go back to work. And once again, it's reinstated that whatever you need, you've got it. And they celebrate the Passover. And that's where chapter 7 begins. But if you look back at verse 1, you notice something very strange happening. In the middle of all of this action, the author stops to give a genealogy. What in the world? That is extremely bizarre. There's all this stuff happening, not to mention the fact that between chapter 6 and verse 7, there's about 50 to 60 years that passes by. And then all of a sudden, the most important thing that we need to talk about now is this genealogy of this guy named Ezra. Why? I think it's because of the end of verse 5. He's the son of Aaron, the chief priest. In other words, this Ezra is not a nobody. This Ezra comes from a priestly line. This Ezra, in the Jewish faith, in rabbinical teaching early on, he was actually considered the second Moses because this was viewed as a sort of second exodus Just like the first one, they were in exile in a land that was not their own, and then God brings them out and instills the law. And now, guess what? They're coming out of exile once again from a foreign land. And here is Ezra, who has been commissioned by God to once again reestablish the people under the law of God. And so a lot of 
early Jews viewed him as the second Moses. He was a very highly regarded individual in the Jewish faith. So he's this priest. But then he also says in verse 6 that he's a scribe. But he's not just a scribe. He's a skilled scribe. A scribe was one who initially had the duty of making copies of the law of Moses by writing it out on scrolls. The scribes came to be known as people who not only copied the law, but who were great interpreters of the law. So the word scribe already indicates that it's somebody who has a firm grasp of the law of Moses. And then he adds to that a skilled scribe. So he's a pro-pro. He's a professional pro. He's very skilled in the law of Moses. He has a firm grasp, not just on being able to recite the law, but in being able to interpret and apply the law. This is the difference. He's not just somebody who could win Bible trivia. He's someone who would know how to apply God's word in many different situations. And even the king Artaxerxes acknowledges that Ezra is very skilled in the law. In, in the, his decree beginning in verse 11, we're not going to go through it, but you can read it later. He says many times, he talks about Ezra as being skilled in this scribe, uh, this skilled scribe in the law of Moses. But even though this is true of him, even though he comes from this priestly line, even though he is a very skilled scribe who's been commissioned by God to go and reestablish the people under the law of God, what is the very first thing that verse 10 says that he set his heart to do? He set his heart to study the law of God. He didn't take the attitude upon himself that he was already prepared or that God had already prepared him as this skilled scribe of the law and that's why you're sending me, isn't it? So I'm good, thank you. No, he undoubtedly felt the weight of this moment, of this opportunity that lay before him. And what does he say? I better get to studying. He didn't think to himself that he already knew so much that there's really not much else to learn. You know, there's not really much for me to learn that's new. You know, I've been studying the Bible for a long time. People always come to me, I'm the expert in the law. There's not really much more for me to learn. He didn't have that attitude, did he? Nor did he have the attitude of, uh, maybe I need to spend my time learning uh, architecture and how to properly rebuild the temple and the city walls. Maybe I need to go and poll the citizens to see what they would like to see in this new Jerusalem. Hey, what, what do you guys think about Casual Friday? It wasn't anything like this, was it? No, he understands this momentous challenge. And so, with all of the biblical wisdom that he has in store, it leads him to say, I need to study. I need to lo- learn more. I need to grow in the knowledge of God. The word here for set his heart, the word set, it's most often translated as established. In other words, this wasn't just something that he said, man, maybe I should brush up a little bit on my, my Torah. This is a firmly fixed resolution, if you like. This is resolve. He is fixing in himself that he's going to do this thing. In Jewish thought, the the heart, where where it references here that he set his heart, in Jewish thought, the heart was the center of your being. So to, to, to say something about the heart was to say something about the whole person. That that his his whole with all that he is, he is deciding and firmly fixing that he is going to do what? Study. I wonder if you've ever thought about Scripture that way. Have you ever thought, with all the fiber of my being, I am going to learn this book? Not just, I'm going to commit to a chapter a day. 
But with all that I am, I'm going to study to know God. Here is this man with surely so much biblical wisdom, so much biblical understanding, and even he is acknowledging how much he has yet to study. You see that, don't you? Not just to read, but to study. The word study, it can be translated as seek or inquire. It really gives you the idea of Ezra setting his heart to seek out what God would have them do, how God would have them live in his word. In other words, he didn't just set out to read the law, but to find God's will in the law, to come to an understanding. And why, though? Like, why, why do this? Why did Ezra do this? And perhaps even more importantly, why should you care? And why should you also do this? Look down at verse 11. Uh, that is not the right place. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, I lost it. There it is. Verse 25. Sorry. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. What is he talking about here? This, the, the wisdom of God that's in your hand. As you read through the rest of kings, the king's decree, he's saying the law of God, the law of God, the law of God, the law of Moses. And then he suddenly changes. It says the wisdom of God that is in your hand. Even this pagan king understands that the law of God is the wisdom of God. That to study the law means to find wisdom. Have you ever thought about the law this way? It's not just do's and don'ts. It's wisdom. It's wisdom on how to live life. Where else would Ezra find the wisdom that he needed to guide these people? And as the king decrees, to appoint magistrates and judges. I mean, who, who can make that decision? You need to put magistrates and judges over the people that are going to apply the law to the people's lives, and, and they're going to judge, and they're going to dictate how things are going to go here. Who on earth is capable of just making that decision and determination on their own? So Ezra, undoubtedly understanding the weight of this, says, I need wisdom. And I know where to find it. It's in the law of God. I need God's wisdom. So I need to turn, the way that we would say it, is to Scripture. I need to turn to His Word. You know, I think that probably a lot of us, if not everyone in here, would, would say, I live biblically. Or I think in a biblical way. And I think that a lot of times we do that just assuming that because I'm Christian, the way I think and how I act, it's biblical. But how often do we truly examine our lives under Scripture, under the scrutiny of the written Word? How much do we truly examine the way that we think? Have you ever thought about your thinking? Thinking about how I think about certain things? How I think about money, how I think about my time, how I think about family. Have you ever examined all of that through the lens of Scripture? Because I promise you when you do, you start to realize how very unbiblical your thinking and living actually is. We start to see, whoa, I have a long way to go. Why do you think Ezra says, you know what I need to do is study? I can't just assume that I'm going to know how to make these decisions. I don't care how skilled people think I am. 
I, I don't care that I'm a scribe and I come from a priestly line. I need to study God's Word. I need to seek out His will through His Word. Ezra understands what Solomon is talking about when he talks about wisdom in the Proverbs. Have you ever read through the Proverbs? Do you know what Solomon will say in a bunch of different, very poetic ways? Is they get wisdom more than you get anything. Pursue wisdom more than you pursue gold and silver. Have you ever thought of this this way? More than I need to pursue money. More than I need to make a paycheck to provide for my family. I need to pursue wisdom. Isn't this what Ezra did? Was Ezra's first reaction here? Oh, king, you know, um, we need money. I I don't know how I'm going to get there. Do we have an Uber? It's going to take me there. How am I going to get there, king? And then once I get there, what about my lodging? Do you see how many very practical considerations Ezra could have set his heart to figure out? But the first thing that is said of Ezra here, that he has set his heart to do, is to study the law. I need wisdom. And I need it yesterday. I need to know how to live according to God's law. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm not Ezra. I'm not being tasked to reestablish the people of God. I'm not a minister. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. This is really a text really more for ministers. But if you are in Christ, you are the people of God. If you are in Christ, you have been called a royal priesthood. Did you know that about yourself? That you are a royal priesthood. So shouldn't you and I, desiring to live in light of the person and work of Christ, take it upon ourselves to do what 2 Peter 3 says at the very end of the chapter, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord our Savior. Shouldn't that mark us to grow in knowledge how does paul tell the romans at the beginning of chapter 12 to live in light in the mercies of god do you remember is to be transformed by changing the way they live is that what he says no he says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind to learn to think according to the word of god so that they may always know the revealed will of God in every given situation. What does the psalmist say the blessed man does in Psalm chapter 1? His delight, he delights in and meditates upon the law of the Lord. Have you ever thought about Scripture that way, that you delight in Scripture? That's what a blessed man does. He delights in and meditates upon the law of Yahweh. Now, how many of us would love to be blessed in all of our endeavors in 2023? I think every single one of us would say, yes, sign me up for blessing, please. But how many of us would love to have the favor of God upon us like Ezra did? It says twice before verse 10 that the hand of God was upon Ezra. Oh, don't you want that? I want that. Now, how many of us are willing to do the very thing that will put us squarely in line to receive the blessing and favor of God? What am I talking about? Look at the very first word in verse 10. Four. Now look at verse 9. On the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law. Of the... Do you know what that little word for is doing there? It's showing us causation. 
It could very well be translated because. So hear it. The good hand of his God was on him because Ezra had set his heart to study the law. The good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra because Ezra set his heart to study the law. Brothers and sisters, we know that God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens without his say-so. He has declared the end from the beginning. Nothing happens outside of what he ordains. And did you know that at the very same time, God has chosen to work through people? That when God decides that he's going to do something, he doesn't just spontaneously, miraculously do everything. He uses people. He has no need for you and I. If he wanted to, he could indeed miraculously and spontaneously cause things to happen. But he chooses to use you and I. He uses our choices. He uses our gifts and our abilities to accomplish his purpose. And in this situation, the purpose of God was to reestablish the people of God as they had just reestablished the house of God under the law of God. So what does he do? He finds a man who has set his heart to study the law of God. He says that one right there, Ezra. Now, how many people do you think were scribes at that time? I don't have any idea. How many scribes were not chosen for this role? Now, did Ezra force the hand of God? Of course not. But do you think Ezra would have been used if instead of studying the law of God, he's sitting there piddling around, wasting his time, that he's engaging in whatever else of the world? Do you think that that would have been the man that God called upon? Not likely. Maybe God can do what he pleases, but not likely. Instead, what he does is he uses Ezra. He puts his favor upon him because Ezra has set his heart to study the law of God. Oh, we want God's favor. We want that, don't we? We want God's blessing. God, please bless this thing. But do we ever think to ourselves, I have to put myself where God has told me to be. I have to put myself here. I, I need to bring myself into subjection to His will. Now make no mistake, blessings don't always look one way. A lot of times we think of blessing and we think it means a new car, it means new this, it means new that. But what did Ezra need the most to be blessed with in this situation? Wisdom. What an incredible blessing. Psalm 19, verse 10, speaking of the law of God, more to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In this case, what Ezra wants to be blessed with is wisdom so that he can lead his people back to God. How many of you in here need wisdom this morning? How many of you are facing a difficult situation or you don't know how to raise your children up in the way they should go or you're dealing with this, that, and the other and you don't know what to do? Wouldn't it be an incredible blessing if the Lord gave you wisdom? Wouldn't it be an incredible blessing if He gave you a book where you could find wisdom? And wouldn't it be incredible if you set your heart to find that wisdom in the law of God. Brothers and sisters, could you make a better New Year's resolution than to resolve to grow in the knowledge of God? I don't think so. But just make sure to couple with that, with that knowledge, the next resolution. He resolved to live in obedience to God. Resolved to live in obedience to God. Ezra had set his heart to study the, 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 Lord, or the law of the Lord and to do it. Oh boy. To do it? You mean I have to do this stuff? I like to read it. I like to study it. I like to hear a good sermon. 
but do it? Something Ezra understood that we must also understand is that the knowledge of the law is useless without obedience to the law. Filling your head with a bunch of stuff and information, do you know it only serves to further condemn you if you have no intention to obey it? If you have no intention to put it into practice because you know the truth. James says to him who knows what is right and doesn't do it, it is sin. So think of how much truth is in your brain about Scripture. Now, how much of that truth are you actually being accountable to and applying in your life? I think that should make all of us tremble, myself included. Ezra had learned something very important through his study of the law. And it's that he must live according to the law. As you come to know and understand the nature and character of God by studying His Word, it gives you a clearer understanding of the great importance of obedience. It does us no good to fill our minds with high theology and sound doctrine when all we intend to do is to sit on it. Oftentimes what that ends up doing is hardening your heart against other people who don't know as much as you do, who aren't as reformed as you are, who don't this and don't that as much as you, all the while you're not applying 95% of what you know to your life. Now listen, you know well enough that I am unapologetically a proponent of reformed theology, of having a high view of Scripture, of studying and learning, and of course of expository preaching. But one of the dangers that any among us, myself included, can fall into is finding comfort simply in knowing truth. Knowing. I know the truth. I can tell you the five solas, the, the five points of Calvinism. I could talk to you about super uh, infralapsarianism. I could talk to you about all of these things. That can be comforting in and of itself. And then we do nothing with the truth. And all it serves to do is to puff us up and make us prideful because of how much we know. At the very same time, our heads can be totally filled up with knowledge and our hearts be completely empty and our hands be completely filthy because we're doing nothing with the knowledge of God that we have in our mind. We must come to know the truth, to love the truth, and to do the truth. We must not only know sound doctrine, we have to live according to sound doctrine. Paul tells that very thing to Titus in chapter 2. You should go read it. If you haven't read Titus, read Titus. Because do you know what is said about the people in Crete? Because he's writing to this young man, Titus, who lives in Crete. And he's tasked with finding elders and raising up sound men of God in a place where even the poets say there's nothing but a bunch of degenerates there. Thanks a lot, Paul. What do you want me to do? So Paul, as he's instructing him in chapter 2, is telling him, you have to focus on teaching sound doctrine. And he lists a bunch of things that is sound doctrine and then says so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. See, it's not enough for us to know. We must do. What does Jesus say about our obedience? Do you remember? Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? John 14.15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In order to keep His commandments, we must learn and study His commandments. But it's not enough just to know, we must also do. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that if Ezra knew a lot of the law, was skilled in the law, that he could quote it backwards and forwards, yet didn't apply what he knew to his life, do you think that it would be said of Ezra that the hand of the Lord was upon him? Maybe in judgment. Because let's ask this question. Was the hand of the Lord ever upon the Pharisees? Was God's favor ever on the Pharisees? No, 
They were called blind guides and whitewashed tombs. Why? Because they knew a lot and they did nothing with it. God shows favor to those who humble themselves under His mighty hand by living according to His commands. This is my great prayer for you as your pastors, that you would come to know and love the Word of God and also apply it to your life. By doing that, you will live in light of the favor of God and you will answer well to Jesus on the last day. Does it mean that life is going to be easy? Of course not. Does it mean that you're going to have all of your wildest dreams? Of course not. Does it mean you'll be perfect? Of course not. But even in your failing and faltering, you can still honor the Lord by giving Him all glory and all honor for saving someone like you. I hope that we would all pray that prayer often. Perhaps there's something in your life, even now, that you know the Spirit of God has been moving you to get rid of, but up to now you haven't done it. Or something that you know God is calling you to do, and up to now you're not doing it. I encourage you throughout this year and beyond to resolve to grow in the knowledge of God and to live in obedience to God. Resolve, in other words, to be a people of the book, submitted to the book. Third, Let's also resolve to act for the benefit of others. Now I'll confess that this one is implied. One of the things that goes along with obedience to God, obedience to the law, is acting for the benefit of others. Where do I get this from? I'll answer that question with a question. How did Jesus tell us that we could fulfill the entire law and the prophets? Do you remember? Is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength? And love your neighbor. He says that's the greatest and first commandment is to love the Lord. And a second is like it. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you love God, you will obey Him. If you obey God, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's a, we could just take that and go home and sulk because of how much we don't do that. The way you fulfill all of God's commands is by loving God and loving your neighbor. It's by doing only what glorifies the Lord, only in a manner that glorifies Him, and by acting in a manner that benefits others. But listen, not just not doing mean things, but positively doing good things to other people. We learned this when we looked at the golden rule in Sunday school, didn't we? We learned that loving other people is not just not doing bad or mean things, but it is acting in their favor. It's not just not doing bad, but doing good. It's not just a negative command. It is a positive command that requires action. Brothers and sisters, I think that if we are honest in here this morning, we might acknowledge how little we truly act with the intention to benefit other people. I think a lot of times when we think about being loving and kind, what we think about is just not cussing someone out, saying hi, just not doing the mean thing, just not talking behind someone's back. But do we realize that the one who exemplified love exemplified it in action, in moving towards us in love while we were his enemies? Not when we deserved it. Have you ever said that about somebody? Well, I don't know if they deserve me to act that way towards them. Well, I'll treat you with the same measure of respect you treat me. Brothers and sisters, is that how Christ loved us? I'll tell you, I am deeply convicted by that myself. How, if we just think about our love towards our brothers and sisters, towards our co-workers, towards our families, can we truly say that we go to work with the intention, how can I be of most good to everyone here today. Is that how you go to work every day? 
Or is it, oh, there's Jan from accounting. Oh, please don't look at me. 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 Hi! It's a Monday. I know. It's a Monday. Yeah. It's Monday. Every Monday, it's Monday. Or is it, how can I show Jan love today? Is it, how can I make sure I climb the ladder and I'm at the top of the ladder and I'm employee of the month? Or is it, how can I pick somebody up who I know is discouraged today? I tell you, that's what it means to love other people. Is to actively be looking to do good. Not just not be mean, but to actively do good to other people. What would it change your workplace? How would it change your workplace if your prayer was to say, Lord, please open up an opportunity for me to show the love of Christ today? Please give me an opportunity with Jan from accounting to be kind to her. I see in my own heart how much I need to unlearn the view of love that is only described in negatives and not in terms of positive action. But if we want to be like Christ, that's exactly how he loves. I'd like to refer here to Jonathan Edwards again from his resolutions. This is something that really sticks out about him, as I said earlier, is that he he resolves to do good things to other people. He says, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty, and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved so to do whatever difficulties I meet with, how many whatsoever, and how great whatsoever. Resolved to be continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance and invention to promote the aforementioned things. In other words, he has resolved to do that which is for the greatest good and advantage for mankind, no matter how difficult it may be, and to find new ways to accomplish this goal. Do you think that way? I don't. I can tell you that. I'd love to say, yeah, that's, that's me. Who, who thinks this way? Do you know who? Someone who has set their heart to study the law and to do it. To love the Lord and to love other people. And I pray that that would be us this year and beyond. It's not just that we would say, hey, I'm praying for you. But that we would say, hey, what do you need prayer for today? Fourth and lastly, Resolve to make disciples. He goes on to say, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Returning to our text now, the third thing that Ezra set his heart to do is to teach the law of God to the people of God. It wasn't enough that he would come to know God and to please God by obeying him. He knew that this task to teach Israel was to teach Israel to do these same things. In other words, he was to make Israel the people of Israel, followers and disciples of God. By the way, if you ever want to know if he actually did it, you go read Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you ever think that I preach long sermons, read Nehemiah chapter 8. Because Ezra began reading the law and giving it sense from the early morning to midday. So you're welcome, because I preach short sermons according to this standard. Maybe one of my resolutions should be to preach from early morning to midday. How about that? Joking aside, the last point of Ezra making disciples, isn't this exactly what Christ has called us to do? In Matthew chapter 28, when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go make disciples. Well, he's just talking to pastors. He's just talking to evangelists. Do you know that my my job description from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, is to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. Did you know that? That is my job. That means that this is not the place where evangelism takes place, where you live, where you work, where you play. That's where evangelism happens. 
God has uniquely placed you within a particular sphere of influence where you have people either that you work with or that you are friends with, that you are perhaps in your own family. And you know what He has tasked you to do? According to all authority in heaven and earth that has been given to Him, is to make disciples. I wonder if, once again, is that, is that your focus? Is that my focus? It's to study God's Word, to live it out, and to teach other people to do the same thing. Maybe you say, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make disciples. That's a fair statement. You know how you do it? You set your heart to study the law of God and to do it. And then to teach other people to do what you just did and are doing. That's discipleship, friends. You set your heart to study the law of God and then to do it, to apply it in your life and then to go find someone and teach them how to do that. How did you do it? Tell them. Do you think God can't use your imperfect efforts? That's all that God ever has from humans is imperfect effort because we're fallen. 1 Peter 2.9 You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Are you in Christ? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And you are in Christ as this royal priesthood so that you may proclaim His excellencies. Scripture does not command us that we make New Year's resolutions. But Scripture does call us to resolve to follow the Lord and honor Him in all that we do. As we think back on 2022, how did you do in these four categories? Whatever your answer is to that question, I challenge us all to resolve in our hearts to grow in the knowledge of God, to live in obedience to God, to act for the benefit of others, and to make disciples. And I pray that God gives us the strength to enable us to keep these resolutions. Now, if you would, please stand.